Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 9 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and human rights. My name is Angela Kugadas and I will be your host for today. Our topic today is on riding social media algorithms. Are they tools of marketing or patriarchy? To help us unpack this question, our guest speakers, Ratna Devi Manakaran, digital content creator and fat liberationist, and Shah S. Alia, a writer, facilitator, and activist currently focusing on gender-based violence and feminist approaches to technology. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Angela. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So social media algorithms appear to be deliberately mystified. We know about them, but we don't know what they actually do. And more importantly, how they do what they do. Users like you, however, have started to observe what happens, the patterns of responses because of social media algorithms. For many, it is perceived as just programmed steps that sort out our feed based on our preferred content, our interests. When did you first learn about social media algorithms? What was your first experience of it and over which platform? We'll start with you, Shah. Hmm. When did I first learn about social media algorithms? I think it came fairly early in my experience with social media in general. Facebook was my first platform. And that was where I first started learning about um, essentially recommended content. Uh, I don't know that I learned about social media algorithms first, but I knew that Facebook as a platform wanted me to see certain things that it liked when I... uh, inputted data around what I liked, you know, with liked groups, with uh, how I spoke to friends, what I looked at. And then I started noticing, you know, targeted ads, started speaking to friends about, you know, what they noticed as well. And then over time, I started learning that this is what they called an algorithm and that social media platforms uh, really thrived on it, you know, because when something is free, like Facebook is allegedly free, um, mm. like Instagram and Twitter is allegedly free, what, what I've learned and what I think a lot of people have learned then is that what they're trading on is your information, right? And information in all sorts of ways. So yeah, that, that was really my first experience. Um, I'd say, uh, what was it? It was like uh, mid to late 2010s. No, like early, early, mid, mid 2000s, let's say. I was in high school, had just gotten onto onto Facebook and then just started learning straight away about it. So it took about like 10 years of, um, of looking at patterns? Of of to learn about social media algorithms. Yeah. I guess I guess it was not uh it wasn't the learning was more uh getting language about it and and having a more uh t- maybe a slightly more technical understanding of it, although I wouldn't don't come to me for the technicalities around building <laughs> social media algorithms. But I think the noticing of the patterns was was early and almost instinctive, just as someone who is um, online, just to kind of see like right. what, what's in all the panels, um, what are the ads that are coming my way, you know, weird things you, you screen cap to share with friends, even like, oh my God, look at what Facebook recommended me. Mm. Um, but the, the maturing of that understanding and also the following of the evolution as uh, we moved platforms, you know, as you tried out different platforms, it it deepened, and mm. you saw how how the platforms themselves evolved beyond 
I'd say very straightforward advertising. Like the algorithms now are more nuanced. Yeah. How about you, Ratna? I think um, I started learning about uh, the algorithms when I noticed a lot of uh, influences, especially fat and uh, black and queer influences. Uh, we're talking about shadow bands and uh, how the algorithm didn't want people to see their content. I, I noticed a lot of it being uh, shared by people who were the non-conventional type of um, standards, you know, so they were not white, they were not thin. I didn't see like a complaint or ranting from people who were, who were not uh, BIPOC, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's when I realized that, okay, um, every time I went to my explore page, I was also being fed a certain type of content. And the content were, uh, it, w- it was hiding people who were like me, basically. And um, that's when I thought, okay, this, this is what um, the algorithm wants me to see. So it's uh, usually very uh, thin-centric uh, and white-centric uh, influences. You're talking about Instagram? Mostly Instagram, yes. Mostly Instagram. I mean, a lot of people, yes, you know, because of this thing, th- these uh, platforms offer you free, right? Free accounts, uh, free use of um, and um, basically um, supports you in getting your social network sort of uh, I guess, uh, expanding your social network or keeping in touch with people. So a lot of people don't see this as a cost. And in fact, uh, they quite like um, content being suggested to them. So isn't it nice to have content, you know, uh, being suggested to you compared to say like before where we had to buy magazines, specific magazines. If you're interested in gardening, then, you know, home decor or or okay, for example, like investments in stock market, you know, you'd have to specifically buy something. Whereas here you got like content like being fed to you. So isn't that isn't that better right now? To me, I I don't um want to have content suggested to me because <laughs> it's usually the same type of content that mainstream people sort of consume. And I, I want to, I want my mind to be challenged. I want to see different ideas. I want to hear from people who are not like me also at times. Um, so I, I really am interested in a lot of things that are not being shown by the algorithm to it for me. So what I choose to do is usually I follow um, what my friends are following, what are they seeing, especially people who are, uh, who have a more feminist uh, perspective um, and also people who are disabled and uh, queer and who talk about those issues and not just, you know, what I see in my explore feed. So uh, for me, I, I, don't want, I, I don't want to be spoon-fed information that um, Instagram or anyone else who decides what I need to be seeing. Mm-hmm. How about you, Shah? Isn't it nice to have content fed to you? Like you don't have to look for it. You know, you don't have to spend time looking for it. There's definitely a convenience factor and an ease that I can't deny for myself. And I'm sure it's the same case for other people. I, I really kind of, I resonate with what 
Ratna saying, but I'm also remembering the journey it's taken to get to this point where I, I do feel like I want to reject what is shown to me, right? And that I, I second guess and I question what, uh, what the platforms are telling me I should look at. But when I think back to my earliest kind of um, experiences of so any form of social media, right? There was a sense of curation that was more strongly present um, maybe in the earlier days, right? And I'm, I'm in my mid-30s. Uh, I got on social media in my late teens. So just to age myself and date myself and also to kind of inform where I'm at in this journey, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the curation of, for example, if you were on Tumblr, you curated your blog very specifically, you would reblog the things that uh, that other people reblogged. And through that, you know, you, you curated who you followed and, and you did this. And then with Pinterest, right, these, these are platforms that maybe don't come up as much anymore, but mm -hmm. were very much, you know, had a very social aspect, had the curation aspect, has also the algorithm aspect. They, Pinterest is built off of recommending you things to look at based on what you say your interests are. So the curation part was there. And then I think the social media platforms took that and, and really ran with it. So for me, it's a, it's a tricky question. Um, I, I understand from my experience, um, from the exposure I've had to other feminists who are looking at tech, other digital rights activists, and just users, content creators who are questioning these things. Um, you know, I know that the platform, the, the tech company's main goal is to keep you there. They want their platforms to be sticky so that you stay there. Your attention is a commodity. So yeah, like right now, I don't want, I don't want my attention to be something that is traded and sold on. I want to create my own uh, perceptions of things. At the same time, sometimes I want to buy an app, you know, an appliance for my house. I want to buy a bajuraya and it helps, it helps to have, to have something kind of curated in this way. Um, and, and I don't know, I guess my, my, where I stand on it, I'm, I'm still a little bit on the fence of how am I complicit? Uh, or or I, let me reword that. Essentially, what is my participation in the decisions that I am making online, right? If I choose to seek out local businesses that are selling um, traditional clothing, that's a choice I want to make, right? Based on the values that I have, which mm. is I want to support local small businesses. I want to see things that are not mainstream. I don't want mass manufactured things. So I'm, I'm looking for that and I'm using the platform uh, as a way to engage with those businesses and those creators. Maybe I feel a bit more in control in that sense. And maybe I have to pay the cost of Instagram knowing that I like these things and they're going to advertise to me more in the future. But I guess for me, it's the difference between passive consumption and active consumption. Yeah. So there, I don't deny there's a convenience to having things recommended to you. There's, there's so much out there um, that, that is being advertised. So there's a convenience, but I think the awareness is for me important as well, that I am actively making my decisions uh, instead of having things made for me, decisions made for me. But uh, a lot of people feel like, especially when they do like digital marketing, Thing, right so a lot of people feel like uh you know it's actually not an issue with the social media algorithms it's just about hashtags and knowing what to look for so so basically both of you are saying that you do look for alternative content content that is not being fed to you but do the platforms then respond to that or do they still do they actively deny you access like for example like feminist content or you know 
anything on issues that uh, I guess to a certain extent, both of you are also talking about uh, something that's quite political, right? What, what you believe in, your values, uh, you know, for example, like you don't want mass uh, sort of uh, products that are mass produced, right? So, and you want to support local businesses, which is also a, a political stand. So I just wanted to find out from, from you right now, you know, like, do you feel like, okay, so you try to teach the algorithm, <laughs> you know, what you're you actually interested in, but does it, does it respond to you? It, it, I don't think it's, uh, it actually realizes what I'm looking for. Uh, it still feeds me like, um, so I don't, from what I remember looking at my explore page or just, um, you know, I, I don't know if you have noticed that there's a change in the Instagram layout um, some months ago where they feed in more like accounts to follow while you look at your, um, the people that you follow, the, your following list. And, you know, the type of content that I see is very uh, generic. So one would be, you know, like all this self-help type of content and like, oh, the nine signs why you are, you know, I don't know, passive aggressive example. Um, and I get a lot of uh, fashion related content, but I'm still not getting like, like abolishing the death penalty, for example. Although those are the things that I'm interested in, like, um, and I post them very regularly in my account, but mm -hmm. I still see that type of content. I don't see um, feminist content also, um, other than the ones that I follow actively. And if I don't seek them out, I'm still not seeing them. Mm -hmm. So I think that the algorithm sort of works on um, how you... Um, what you actively engage in, but also like the sponsored post, right? It keeps pushing out content that people have paid for. So um, it's really quite hard to understand like how the algorithm works other than what we sort of, you know, conceptualize ourselves. So, yeah. Mm. How about you, Shah? Total agreement with Retna, I think. And I think Retna's brought in a really important point around money and around the, the, the business of algorithms. You know, just because we are participating uh, with algorithms in a quote unquote free way, right? Like if I click like or if I click share, even if I click, you know, view website or view store, those to me might seem like free actions. But like Retna says, like, the, the algorithm is not trying to speak to you as an individual. It's not trying to speak to me as Shar, the way I understand myself to be. It's speaking to me as a user and as a consumer. And we are one of, I don't even know how many um, people are on each platform, right? If we were talking about TikTok, how many millions or billions of users, if we're talking about Instagram, um, talking about Facebook, we're talking about Twitter. So these algorithms, I think, think are my understanding of them is that they're trying very very hard to to take all that individuality and and reduce them to the common denominators right so if you are if you identify as a woman 
if you're of a certain age, then it's like, oh yeah, fashion might might be something you could be interested in. Oh, okay, it seems like you like queer things, then we'll we'll show some kind of baseline queer things at you. But you know, I, I could get very global north things, you know, things coming from Europe and America. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm from Malaysia. I'm more interested in Southeast Asian stuff. How do they show that stuff to me? So, you know, all these things are kind of built into that because we also have to think about who makes these um these platforms. They're all, except for TikTok, uh, they're all uh, housed in Silicon Valley, right? And Silicon Valley exists beyond California. The mentality of tech exists beyond that. So yeah, it's, um, I don't know that it cares so much about what I like, but it likes telling me what I should like, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. that's my experience of it, yeah. That sounds like there's a bias for Global North content. I don't know if that's saying or if that means that there's not enough content being generated by Southeast Asians, for example, or queer Southeast Asians, which may be true to a certain extent. So what about freedom of expression? Both of you have used social media platforms to express yourself, to express your values. Uh, right now, you just mentioned about uh, the death penalty, right? So do you feel like, as a as fat liberationist, as someone who believes in, in human rights, these social media platforms have actually... Uh, help to boost your freedom of expression, help to amplify what you really want people to better understand? I think it it definitely has. Um, It's helped me um, even come out of my own shell because I, uh, prior to being on social media, like I never really, I, I felt like I couldn't speak how I felt. And I, uh, policed myself from saying things. Um, also, because uh, there were many layers to that. Um, you know, as a fat person, uh, you're sort of um, hyper, you know, like you're only seen as a fat person and then you're very invisible. And so for me, uh, when I first came on social media, I I used it as a tool to you know, uh, it was my business. I tried to gain like visibility from it. Uh, but the more I stayed on and the more um, people that I sort of met via social media, like the community that I've sort of got to be around with um, allowed me to, to actually express myself better. And I feel like um, with with time and with the years, while I try to learn about myself as well, I've been very vocal about the things that I'm interested in on Instagram and on TikTok. I don't know what the I don't know what the nuance is or how people view me. I think there is a certain type of content that they expect from me, and anything out of the norm is doesn't really you know it's not it, it's not very likable so as long as i'm not very likable then my content doesn't do very well could you, you give and like an example of that so i feel like if i'm not talking about how badly i feel about my body or how uh you know how i was treated because i was fat you know um am fat uh then the, the views or the engagement is lower compared to if I'm talking about, you know, something like a human rights issue, you know. Mm. Um, so they're more 
concerned about, um, I would say sharing of uh, like trauma and, um, but I also understand the relatability of it. You know, it's lived experiences bring people closer together. You know, if you're not interested in a human rights issue, then you're, that's, then you're not, you know, you can't force yourself. Uh, you're not going to suddenly like it, you know, it may take some time for you to get there. So I understand all those things as well. Um, but I think uh, people sort of expect to hear um, a type of content from me. I think as also because I didn't start out with uh, activist language. I didn't start out as a feminist. You know, I started out as a fashion sort of person and uh, moved from there and grew from there. So um, it, it's taking it's taking some time for people to sort of uh, remove their ideas of me as well. So um, I think it's helped me, but it also sort of constricts um, my freedom of expression. Ratna, are you saying like um, the audience, the the audience or the people that you manage to reach, they are uh, profiling you not just the social media algorithms per se, but it's also them profiling you in terms of how sure. they're responding to your content for sure and i think like as a as a fat individual right um what people do is they categorize you right are you a good fat or are you a not good fat what's a good so, fat so a good fat is someone who is you know fat but like going to exercise like working out all the time and eating like you know like quote unquote, so-called healthy. improvement <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're doing something to basically get like, you know, brownie points, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying like eating good and nutritious food is bad. I'm not saying going to exercise is bad, but um, doing that for other people's validation of you is painful um, to constantly seek out that validation from people. Is, is, uh, it's really difficult, you know? And so uh, what I'm saying is as long as I'm not um, being a good, if I'm saying things that are, you know, like, oh, I don't care about your validation, you know, I'm going to exist in my body the way I want to, it's controversial <laughs> because why? How can you be okay in this body, you know? It's this type of things that are not acceptable. By, it, it's not very acceptable uh, accepted here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe West people are a bit okay with that, and I find like you know my followers are fine. Um, they are fine, but it's the in the Malaysian context, it's a bit um, uh, difficult, lah. Yeah. Mm. Sha, do you do you face the same thing? Yeah, there are a few things I can relate to um, from what Rana, Rana shared. Primarily, the how extreme emotions are more attractive for people to engage with. So, for me, my personal experience was for a period of time, especially in my like early to mid twenties. I think I had a very clear idea of myself as like an angry young feminist online, mm-hmm. and I knew that was. That was how I was presenting myself. That was the space I was occupying, that I was happy to occupy. And that was what people expected of me. And it, it came from a lot of different things. It came from obviously wanting a sense of belonging um, with other feminists and activists. It also came from a desire to do something, right? To actually express 
what I was only beginning to understand as my my anger um, and my my sadness at at the discriminations I was viewing and that I had experienced myself. Um, and then wanting to, as a writer as well, figure out how best to be heard. So then if you craft your anger eloquently, people listen to you or they retweet you or they share your stuff. Um, that, that kind of stuff started becoming a, a lot more hollow for me. You can only, for me, you can only express anger in that way for so long. Without how, it. Do you, how do you express anger eloquently? <laughs> <laughs> face a challenge you, in that. Oh, you go on Twitter and you look at everyone doing Twitter threads and, and participating in discourse and, and you know, people have a quite a, a vocabulary that they've developed around being woke, so to speak, and, and maybe approaching it from what's seen as an objective academic point mm. of view instead of being, or doing the, the inverse, which is becoming, you know, being very deeply emotional coming from the lived experience, because then people feel like they can't contradict you. And again, nothing wrong with speaking from your lived experience, nothing wrong with speaking from an academic point of view. What I kept experiencing was that these things started being performances. Mm. You know, people were more, more interested in speaking to an audience than they were in listening to one another and developing community my experience of social, if you can call it that social media has always been community and fandom based. It was having a little blogging circle on Blogspot of friends who followed each other and commented on each other's stuff. That's, that's not social media as we understand it, but it was deeply social. I still have friends to this day that I met while blogging on Blogspot when I was 17 years old. Tumblr as well, really coalescing around boy bands, around movies, you know, exchanging GIFs. That's what I prefer. And on Instagram, the best things I find are from other people I follow, my friends who I already trust, right? So the expression part for me, I've always been so inspired by how other people express themselves, right? So I'm seeing, I've, I've learned so much from other feminists, from sex workers, from disability activists, from fat liberation activists, from abolitionists online. That informs my politics, which is connected to my expression. But as I get older, or as I've spent more time on social media and internet, on the internet, um, I... I guess I feel more ambivalent about that freedom of expression being purely about verbally or textually or externally expressing yourself, you know, like there's so much noise online and there's almost a pressure that if you are on these platforms, you always have to say something mm. because the platforms themselves are telling you, you know, there's so much advice for content creators on Instagram, on YouTube, that like, if you don't post enough, your, your stuff isn't going to be seen. It isn't going to reach the right audiences. So then you get into this churn mentality. And I'm just like, sometimes you just need to think. Sometimes you just need quiet to, to listen and to absorb. Sometimes you need to disengage. And I've prioritized that a lot more. And I believe that's still connected to my freedom of expression. And I will say the other big point that Ratna brought up is the shared identity of being Malaysian and living within Malaysia. Um, my freedom of expression is compromised by what my nation state that I belong to that, that claims me as theirs tells me I'm allowed to express, right? We see so many examples of people who express their, their pure opinion, their pure thought that is not law, that is not a decree, that is not a royal ruling, and they get punished for it. 
you know, and we know um, platforms have no idea what to do with fat people. Platforms have no idea what to do with disabled people, queer people, um, except to punish them. So uh, it's the, there's the freedom of expression, sure. There's a facilitation of that, but there has to be an awareness of the intersectionality of our identities and our rights. I know as a Malaysian, there are some things I just cannot say online if I want to be safe. Um, is that freedom? No. <laughs> is mm. that is that living a life safely? Yeah, probably. So I don't know. Um, there's a very, the, the discourse around freedom of expression online, uh, I feel sometimes leaves out these nuances. But is, is there like a, a difference? Because I mean, there are queer voices from the global north. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, if, if there is a marginalization of uh, queer voices from the south, then does that point to some form of embedded racism? Uh, are these social media platforms actually tools of patriarchy or tools of you know discrimination? I mean, anything can be a tool of patriarchy or discrimination, probably. <laughs> I feel patriarchy is very good at co-opting, as is ca capitalism. Um, it's difficult. That's a difficult question, for sure. Because I, I also, when you were saying earlier, like Angela, is it is it kind of an impossible thing to to have so many to to have a stronger queer stronger queer voices from Southeast Asia? I I don't. It's definitely possible because it exists. There's so many excellent queer Southeast Asian voices out there, um, you know, anonymously or not, of uh, and all very brave and all showing the way for the rest of us. Um, I, I just think also of scope, right? Like I said before, the platforms are built from a global North lens, primarily North America or Europe. The, the audiences that they want, the businesses that they want to court are also based there. And, mm. you know, like the, the amount of, for example, the Roe versus Wade discourse, right? Mm. Abortion rights being discussed. I there that put me in a very difficult position personally, right? I'm I'm a I'm pro-choice, I am pro-bodily autonomy, uh, I support gender equality, I support women in all their diversity, mm -hmm. cis and trans and otherwise. I I was so sick of hearing about the abortion rights uh, argument from the Roe versus Wade um, USA point of view, you know. And it was all I knew it. Uh, I I saw some friends trying to um boost signal boost uh fundraisers happening uh for south asia for flooding happening in I, I believe pakistan and india and it happened on the exact same day and my first thought was oh they're gonna get buried no one's gonna pay attention to this fundraiser because everyone all of us you know because it feel it's a very strong emotion yeah. to feel uh it's about bodies it's about women it's about rights looking at this global superpower really become an evil but it means then you get fed the same content and you don't see, we're so small. We're so small, even though we are technically the larger world, if we're talking about the global South, right? We mm, occupy yeah. most of the world. I think in terms but of when people, you see, yeah. Yeah, and, but when you see who, who has access um, and who, mm -hmm. who has privileged voices, that, that's what happens is you see more of that. It's all in and English. I think the algorithms... Yeah, all in English. Language justice is a huge unspoken thing by, by the people building these algorithms, yeah. So do you think like the content, is it driven also by hate? Because, uh, you know, I've also observed like how 
suddenly we have like anti-feminists suddenly knowing about feminists, you know, fem- feminist posts. <laughs> and I'm wondering like, why, why are they responding to this? How did they get into this circle? Because if we say, uh, you know, the algorithm doesn't really uh, feed us what we really want to know. And, and what we want to know is alternative content, human rights, about human rights issues, um, uh, uh, you know, things that are maybe not politically mainstream. But if we say that, and then, you know, feminist voices are suddenly attacked, right? So is it driven by hate, do you think? Maybe we'll go to Shah, you know, like in terms of feminist voices and anti-feminist sort of movements on social media, they seem to pick up on this content very easily. So yeah. do you think the algorithms are also riding on, on or, hate? Yeah. Or like what we would, yeah. And because if we say commodified, concept, trauma yeah. is commodified, mm. or your personal trauma is commodified, then is hate also commodified? Mm. I mean, that's a really interesting framework for it. I mean, I feel like it's certainly possible. I don't think there's a yes or no answer personally, but like we t- we were talking earlier, both Ratna and myself talking about extreme emotion, right? And why mm. why is it that, that that is the most attractive way of appealing um, to, to people? I'm, I'm on YouTube a lot. Uh, YouTube is a platform I like spending time on. I like watching video essays and I subscribe to certain content creators. And, you know, then you also get, uh, you get a bit of a glimpse into what it means to be a YouTuber, the ways in which they have to, for example, even like fashion their thumbnails Mm -hmm. so that when people look at it and it's usually just like a shocked face or an angry face, like really it goes to almost like basic psychology or, or how they used to have uh, tests uh, at, you know, that you would have heard of, of like these extreme faces and, and grading the emotions. Um, because when you just have a calm face or you have a very neutral face, I guess people are thinking that's boring. There's nothing sensational. Uh, so yeah, I think with hate, the emotions that are also connected to it is, you know, you're passionate, you are, you are motivated, right? Hate can move you to act. Um, and that means that you are more likely to engage. You're more likely to then be driven to um, watch something, comment on it, share it, um, maybe even make another video to counter what's been said. Mm. So the, the, the motivation to actually engage in all these ways, that is one, a form of expression, but also a form of engagement that can be monetized. You make a video that's shared by other people, there's money in that for the platform. You make a video that, that everyone hates, that everyone goes to dunk on in the comments, that's money for the platform. You go to a video that, that other people start creating videos in response to, that's money for the platform. So, you know, I guess it's like the feel-good stuff, you know, a good public proposal, a, a cute little cat or something, that also gets high levels of engagement, but we don't think about it maybe as much because it's benign. But it's the same thing. I think it's just what moves people to feel like I have something to say about this or I have to share this with a lot of people. I have to, I have to get this shut down even, you know? Because um, some mm-hmm. people, I know right now you'll probably be able to speak more on this, but there's this uh, like a reward and punishment system that's built into the algorithm, right? So if you, if you get reported a certain amount of times, uh, you might still be able to be active on a platform, but you are you know, in effects, shadow banned, where your your content is then buried and, you know, you're being punished for not being a good social media user, 
good fat, bad fat. So I think if hate in, uh, drives engagement, then they're going to use it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. And I say they, I mean the platforms. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the people who are building these spaces we are participating in. But why would they have- deliberately like shadow ban? Because I mean, any content should be good, right? Because that feeds into their you know, big data sort of uh, profiling, collection of data on you, because whatever it is, I mean, if we say like, and we've seen how much content Facebook has collected on some of us, (laughs) including like, you know, your little chats on the side in Messenger, that's quite scary. So they, they collect every single sort of content on you possible, and yet they sort of don't want to drive your content if you don't fit a mainstream what is you know what, what's your experience of that right now i think I, I wanted to add to what uh Sha was saying about hate i i now now it's clicking right i'm mm-hmm. reminded of what happened so um in tiktok um you know the the audience on tiktok is just like really varied like it's really hard to control your audience in tiktok so on instagram what i do is i usually like block um mm-hmm. a, a lot of like this user 7580019 i would just block them okay like if you don't have a profile like i don't see why you are you know here just consuming me um i don't feel safe mm-hmm. okay so mm-hmm. on tiktok um what i started doing was um, I just like did a video. It was just an, a video, and um, the cis man like came onto this video and started saying things about me, like um, why is my hair so messy, or why do I look like I've not taken a shower? Um, and then uh, this woman comes and says uh, in Tamil, like she says, you know, you should be ashamed about uh, or you should be ashamed of yourself for wearing these types of outfits. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wearing like a anything. It's like a normal outfit, right? And so what I started doing was, because I was so angry, I'm like, how dare? Why would you come to my profile and tell me all these things? Like, I'm not living, like, waiting for you to give me, like, accolades or whatever. But don't come and talk to me about these things, right? And so, like, I start making this responses video and what would happen is they would comment on that. They would still comment on that. And then I would go and make another video. And what started happening was people reporting those videos as harassment. Mm. So they would report my video standing up for myself as harassment, but not report the comment that these people are making on my appearance as bullying. Mm-mm. So what's happening, you know? And um, so recently I got banned on TikTok. So what, what TikTok does is they, okay, the accounts, the sorry, your videos can only get um, like taken down or uh, removed by, um, by people reporting that content. So it's not just going to say, oh, there's something here. I'm going to block this video. No, it's because someone has reported your content. And therefore, they flag that as inappropriate or 
like not within the community guidelines. So what happened to my account was I was getting reported based on adult nudity for a lot of my videos that I was actually making in response to people complaining about, I mean, like making like negative comments. That means like there's, there's no, there's no system to protect the content creator, you know, but um, yeah, I think uh, I was just adding to the point of the hate, you know, like moving and how that really motivates someone to keep going. So it was motivating me to be on the app because I was getting so many views. Like there was so many people like commenting and like um, agreeing with me who were not really even there before I made this like mm-hmm. video, you know, like here I am, like if I make like a happy video sharing my outfits or sharing something joyous in my life, like I get like 600 views. But if I'm talking crap about someone, I'm getting like 20,000 views, you know, wow. but I get penalized for saying those things. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a really big uh What's that word? There's a really big like uh, difference lah, in how uh, you are being treated. And I think to answer your question, why do you get shadow banned? Um, it's to me, I think as long as I'm talking about something that is not benefiting a system, mm-hmm. I'm not benefiting capitalist ideologies. I am saying, hey, there are other ways, there are alternatives to, to life basically then what, what's my purpose? I'm not generating income for a brand. I'm not uh, making your political agenda um, the right one to, to follow. So there's no point of having voices like mine be heard. I, I, that's what I think at least. Mm. But you started out um, basically as, you know, promoting your business. And Shah has actually, you know, talked about like how everything sort of makes money for the platform in terms of the content, not just the content, but the likes, um, the shares and so on. So did it really benefit you as a, as a business owner being on social media and, you know, having the algorithms? Because I assume the algorithms would be working the same way. So as a business owner, I think that um, it, it really helped the business. Um, especially like if you're a smaller business, you sort of have to have um, social media is like your other storefront. Mm. Um, it really it helps you gain visibility. Um, it helps all your friends know about you. And then you know it's the interviews, it's the the magazines that that you know collab collaborate with you. But it does get you noticed. Um, but if you want to be further noticed, if you want to be huge on social media, then you have to spend the money, and you have to be, uh, you have to either go viral, or or spend the money. There's no other way around that. So it does benefit businesses, um, but to the extent of which it benefits the business depends on what you're putting into your ads and the work that you put out. Right, right. 
So for, for both of you, um, should we try to write the social media algorithms like some, how some people are saying like, oh, it's just a matter of hashtags, uh, keywords, you know, uh, creating like the advice that you sort of uh, mentioned, Shah, you know, creating content regularly, responding, etc. Do we write it or do we reject it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> write or reject I mean what a, what a very comforting binary that does not exist um, I don't know whether there's anything like you know whether you can do both at the same time oh yeah I mean I speak as someone who's uh, quite quite ambivalent about social media right but I I feel like in a way and this is a joke yeah but I feel like I've earned that ambivalence after having been on social media for like more than 10 years I think if I had any advice um, it would really be kind of a it's it's it, it takes inspiration from this conversation that's happening I know what's helped me is just actually connecting to my own desires and my needs why is it that I feel I need to be on a social media platform? Be very honest with myself of what actually do I get from it, right? So mm. I, I, I have been a person that, as I've shared, have, have developed friendships, really deep ones through, through various platforms. You know, I have friends from Blogspot, from WordPress, from Tumblr, from Twitter, from Instagram, I, so for me, I know it helps me stay connected. It also appeals to other parts of me that I feel are very human. You know, there's a part of you that that wants to be a little bit of a performer sometimes, you know, that mm. wants to be like, I want to tell a joke to 20, 30 people and I want to get the lols and the reacts. Like that, that's a shot of dopamine. I get that. Um, once I know why I'm there and what it actually does for me, uh, I think it helps me figure out my, my actions around it, right? What I share, what I don't share, maybe how I moderate my use. Um, I use it for distraction like a lot of people. I'll also acknowledge that I have the privilege to be thinking about this because I don't depend on any of these platforms for a livelihood. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything to sell. Uh, it's not my only means of connecting with people I love and care about. It's not my only means of news. If I need to access important information, I can access it elsewhere. I can even pay to access it, right? Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to media outlets. So for me, I'm coming from a very privileged perspective of I can take it or leave it. I fully understand there are so many people, Facebook is the internet, you know, mm -hmm. Instagram is the internet. It's where they search for, you know, I, I read somewhere recently that like half, half, there was a study done where half of the Gen Z population surveyed said that they use Instagram or TikTok as search engines. My instinct whenever I don't know something is I immediately go to Google. I try and find a Wikipedia page because I understand that from my generation. I can't even think about going to TikTok and searching like, what does magnesium do, for example? Yeah. Um, what, what would I get, right? Because yeah. it's a random mix. It's, it's algorithmically driven and it's not necessarily scientifically accurate or, you know. Yeah. So, so I think there's, there's a lot of awareness that needs to happen. But also, if you're talking about personal practices, start with the self-knowledge. Is, is my only advice. And I say that in scare quotes, who am I to advise you? You do whatever you need to do on social media. But I think it's not about writing or rejecting. 
maybe reflecting is my alternative to this. Reflect on why you're on social media. Think a little bit more about what they're showing you. I think I spend hours on the explore page on Instagram just to just to waste time, just to reclaim some of my time for myself because I don't have a lot of other moments in my modern day life to, to kind of have time to myself sometimes. Um, but you know, it's like, why, yeah, why am I getting a lot of this kind of content? Do I like it? Do I, does it make me mad? Does it make me feel okay? Does it make me feel disconnected? Sometimes you just, yeah, that can help. It can help or, you know, it can add something new. Um, that's, that's really the only thing I, I would feel comfortable recommending. All right. What about you, Ratna? Especially since you've had the experience of trying to like run a business, get it promoted, get it publicized. Thank you. I think um, Shah said it really beautifully. Uh, the, the word that really comes out to me is reflection. And uh, as someone who sort of has to depend on social media, um, I think protecting myself and my peace also is very important. Uh, so I choose who I follow. I choose who I basically unfollow, what I don't want to see. I curate um, everything that I, I see on social media. And I guess also like, um, like I shared earlier, you know, there are certain accounts that I know I, have no reason for following me like fetish accounts uh, that I, I block immediately. So mm. these are the things that I do just to keep myself sane also. Um, and I think, um, yeah, the, the reflection of why are you here? Uh, what is in for you and how you want to be perceived uh, would be things to sort of look at and and move from there. Um, yeah, that's all. Can I just add something else that I've sure, just remembered? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I also just want to say that we, social media algorithms, right, those three words, I think we talk about social media a lot and almost forget the social aspect of it. We as humans are deeply social creatures. Something I've relied on and focused on a lot more recently is community, right? Like who, who do I feel like I belong with and to and who am I accountable to? So if I know that who my community are, it doesn't matter where, where they are in, in which platform, right? But that means I can focus on them and also to know where my community are offline as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that relationship building, the groundedness, like you can be online. Online is a, is a very important space for all of us. There's so much access issues and, yeah, and it's a reflection. Yeah, was <laughs> Yeah, and a reflection, a reflection of our offline lives now, right? There's no distinction anymore. It's all blurry. It's all the same mm. some, some places. I, I don't deny that, but I think when you, uh, I think social media can sometimes make us forget that we're actually humans and we're not just, you know, putting coins into the algorithm slot machine. So, so it's like, if you are, if you feel alone online, I, I, you know, I really hope that you, you understand that you're not, that you can figure out a place where you don't feel like you are alone and, and that, that development of some social ties that are actually grounding be it on a platform or offline or both, ideally, that means that the algorithm part 
not to say it's uh you don't have to think about it at all. There are systems at play that we all have to, we all are a part of, whether we like it or not. But I think that alienation is what I'm trying to speak to. Sometimes I think social media algorithms, they make content creators feel like machines. They make the rest of us feel like consumers. So mm-hmm. how do we how do we stay human and connected and actually go back to the core of why social media exists to begin with, right? The the connection piece. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that was the basic idea, no? The connection, yeah, yeah. social networking. I I really wanted to uh, add that as well, and Shabi me to it. Um, it's that element of community that that is the reason why I stay in social media. Um, without Instagram, I would not have found my fat community. I would not have um, found my queer community. And so um, it is still a medium that I use to stay in touch. Uh, mm. But also like um, with my fat squad, you know, like mm-hmm. we've actually built like a small community there that we've done like physical events as well. And I think um, what Shah said is, is brilliant, like, how do you bring that community offline as to, you know, um, you stay out of isolation uh, by being online and having like an online presence and a sense of community and belonging. Uh, but you can also do this off, offline if you uh, have friends that are, you know, like-minded around you. And uh, yeah, I really like that point. Thanks so much for those insights, Ratna and Shah, and especially for sharing your lived experiences about what it's like to observe social media algorithms in play. You've both made great points on what users of social media need to be aware of. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Angela, and thanks, Ratna. Thank you for um, having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode on fighting sexual harassment. Are these call-outs or is it part of cancel culture? You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, Gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense.